Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. Our last episode covered the killing of Jamal Khashoggi by the Saudi government. Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS as he's known, or Mr. Bonesaw as you could also validly call him, is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and he's also the one who gave the direct order for the murder of Jamal. All the evidence points that way and there is simply no other viable explanation. As the facts around the murder came out, everyone saw MBS exposed for who he really is in a way that couldn't be denied, and many believed that he would have to face consequences. But the subsequent cycle of lies, deflection, whataboutery, gaslighting and threats, not to mention the doubling down of his allies including Donald Trump, seemed to indicate business as usual for him. He and his dictator buddies have, over the last few years, raised repression to horrifying levels in the Arab world and basically silenced or pummeled into oblivion every dissenting or independent voice. This has led many to believe that the dictators will be victorious, even imminently. In this episode, Iyad al-Baghdadi and I try to zoom out to the wider picture, exploring that prediction and offering our alternative explanation. But first, a message from our wonderful sponsors. This episode of the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast is sponsored by McKinsey & Company, the Arab Tyrant-friendly global management consultancy. Do you need to modernize your archaic autocracy? We help our clients build a vision to transition into future economies without any consideration of human rights. And if this results in negative coverage on social media, we can prepare lists of dissidents for you to gently communicate with. Just don't use a bone saw. Sadford is a parody. McKinsey does not sponsor this podcast, though they did, according to the New York Times, repair a list of KSA's critics on social media. They were later targeted. So, Iyad, we're talking about 40 days after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and at this point it seems like a lot of the news has died down and to a lot of people it appears as if Mohammed bin Salman has won. People are openly using that word that he's won. Certainly from his behavior it looks like he feels that he's gotten away with that. He's being completely blatant about it. You know there's no need to try to present a halfway credible story. And I know that you have a very different perspective, so I wanted to hear that. Even some of the conversations are kind of like about when are they going to have a final victory rather than whether they're going to have a final victory. Of course, they are advertising their own impunity in a way, in a very blatant way. It's kind of like they have completely given up on trying to hold on to some semblance of a moral high ground. I, I guess in their own minds and what's tied up in their own narrative is is not that we're failing to capture this, but rather that we don't need to anymore. Who is there to resist us? You know. So the conversation seems to have shifted to the horizon of political possibility in the Arab world. In other words, is this the end of, of Arab history? Is this what the end of Arab history looks like? Stasis or complete victory of dictatorship? What does it mean for people like us? Uh, what does it mean for the voices of resistance? The End of History is a reference to a book written by Professor Francis Fukuyama in the early or mid-90s. And he basically made the argument that liberal democracy was the end stage of the development of human political systems and that all countries would eventually reach this kind of final stop on the road. And that was it. And... 
the kind of perception out there at the moment is that this kind of absolute, unchecked, unmitigated authoritarianism in which all opposition is crushed is the end stage of Arab history. There's nothing beyond this. And this is our destiny. Well, of course, this is normally caught up in also narratives around the failure of the Arab Spring. And really a lot of it's a lot of essentialization of Arab politics and Arab societies, which kind of seem to to be carrying the idea that this is the Arab normal. I remember one of the things you tweeted in the early days of the Arab Spring. You tweeted something along the lines of basically the actions of the counter-revolution are not a sign of health. They're thrashing around like this because they're in pain. Like when you take a fish out of water, it's not really healthy and energetic. It's dying. And that's why it's thrashing around like that. And the brutality that we see around us today, whether it's in the horrific repression in Egypt, whether it's in the brutality being visited on Yemen, you know, the depths of depravity of the Saudi regime, whether it's in Syria, Bahrain, or elsewhere, it doesn't seem to be a sign of health that you have to visit such brutality so consistently and so constantly on your own population. That's not what you do when you feel secure. When I actually wrote this, I believe it was 2012, it missed certain predictions. It missed the fact that, oh, it's, it's uh, okay, this is happening, but also it's going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot of trauma. A secure tyrant does not have to be that repressive. If you have to beat up someone every day, that means that they're resisting you every day. I mean, at some point, the most successful dictatorship would be something like Mubarak before the, the, the revolution, where he didn't have to be overtly and overly repressive, got to the point where there is no resistance anymore. People just stay in line and keep their heads down, and they've had all the all the will to fight beaten out of them. That's exactly it. And this is this is why, I mean, Hassan Hassan, who's a dear friend and someone I respect very and admire very highly, recently wrote an article for The Atlantic. The title was The Arab Winter is Coming. And the subtitle was something like the counter-revolutionary bloc is asserting itself more than ever, and that they believe that victory is well within reach, and the job is about to get finished, and that they have a sense of progress and near victory. And of course, I mean, I, I highly admire uh, Hassan, and as I said, he's a dear friend, but I, I disagreed at a very fundamental level with his, with his article. And we ended up having a debate over direct messages in which we kind of ended up understanding each other a lot more. But I guess I wanted to review this. I primarily wanted to review this with myself, really, and review it with you, Ahmed. The reason why I feel that it's very short-sighted to talk about the end of Arab history being what we see today. My contention is still the same, which is that rather it's a, it's a sense of fear and paranoia and not a sense of impending victory, which is driving this hysterical behavior by these regimes. This is, this is actually coming from their paranoia because they're really, really afraid of losing control. So the classical way of thinking about dictatorship and the, what, what they call authoritarian resilience is that for certain segments of society, for certain elites, there is a kind of pact between those elites and between the, the regime. Because for elites, they see this reality, even with, with all of its repression, to be preferable to something else. This was the talk, for example, during the rise of ISIS, like four years ago, 2014. So I did this lecture, I remember this was 2016, and it was me on the panel, it was Maha Yahya from Carnegie Middle East, and it was uh, Professor Eva Bellin. And of course, Professor Bellin basically wrote a lot and did a lot of research on what's called basically authoritarian resilience. 
And of course, she rejects all those essentializations. She's like, it's not like the reason why this region is uh, seems to be kind of a democracy-free region. Uh, it doesn't have to do with the culture. It doesn't have to do with society, etc. But she she basically boils it down to to a few uh, to a few points. During that lecture, when she was asked about her own projections for the near future, she cited this pact with the elite, and she's like, you know, the elites right now with the rise of ISIS would always, of course, choose the side of the government, even if it's authoritarian, because the option seems to be ISIS. And this is something, of course, that that makes sense, but I guess it doesn't apply in a post-ISIS world. And it doesn't apply when Mohammed bin Salman is basically imprisoning and torturing the elites in the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh. What kind of pact with the elite can you speak about now? It's not, it's not a pact based upon consent anymore. It's basically based upon naked repression. It's basically him saying that I want to shrink down the elites. So I, I don't know of any, quote-unquote, broad segments of elites or society which is supportive of, of the status quo. Keep in mind, Jamal himself would have been, I mean, in a normal Arab world, he would have been classified as one of the elites. So, I mean, when, when they speak about a possible win, a victory, I really don't know what kind of criteria we're talking about that can constitute a possible win. Like, I don't know whether the laws of human nature or the laws of sociopolitics or economics or something are going to suddenly change such that Stalin-style repression plus a diversified and, and open economy can coexist. I don't know if that's even possible. And to be honest, sometimes I feel that we are projecting our own rationality on them. There's a lot of stuff where we say, hey, they won't do that. They're not going to be stupid enough to, to like, you know, to, to hunt down a journalist and then sever, like kill, kill him in, in, a, in foreign uh, soil and then uh, cut up his body and then dissolve him in acid. Like it, it would have been completely unthinkable, but then all bets are off now. I mean, uh, like we're talking, for example, about the possibility of uh, MBS. Would he go to the extent of banning Twitter in Saudi Arabia? And of course, this is completely self-defeating for someone who wants to kind of invite Silicon Valley, etc. But then all bets are off. All of these things are completely self-defeating. I mean, if, if we think that MBS is as smart as we are, mm-hmm. let me put it this way, because I do believe that he's completely stupid. The worst kind of idiots are the people, are the idiots who think they're geniuses. So the, the thing about these dictators is that they get to the point, they have so much power and they have so much money, and they surround themselves with yes-men uh, who kind of just parrot back whatever they want to hear to the point that they end up not knowing that they're idiots. So I'm basically I'm saying that if MBS was as smart as we are, he wouldn't do these things because these things are so blatantly counterproductive. We cannot exactly bet on MBS's intelligence. So you just made the point that a lot of his power and his ability to do this stuff rests purely on his financial resources. That's behind the, the military power that he commands. That's behind the special relationship with Trump. That's behind being, to bri- being able to bribe and threaten the entire world into basically acquiescing to what he's doing but he's also endangering that very wealth with his actions because as everybody knows and as even the Saudi government has implicitly admitted by now they're on an unsustainable path and they're not going to survive beyond the next few years if they don't transition to a more sustainable economy and if he doesn't transition to a sustainable economy he is going to be broken he's going to be another one of those tin pot broke dictators and therefore his entire plan rests on being able to shift the economic model of the country into something 
which you know has venture capital, it has startups, it has international business. So what does this genius do? He goes ahead and takes an action so gruesome and heinous that it prompts you know Richard Branson to completely pull out of all of his projects promoting tourism in Saudi Arabia. It prompts the near collapse of uh, the Saudi Future Investment Initiative Conference, whatever it's called. Bill Gates also has pulled out you know all his support for MISC, the MISC Foundation. A lot of people have pulled out, um, which just kind of highlights the stupidity. But then even his economic plan has backfired. And in fact, 2017 was a recession year in Saudi Arabia. I think the economy of Saudi Arabia shrunk by somewhere between 0.7% to 1% in 2017. It was a recession year. Is MBS incompetent? Of course, he is incompetent. But the question is, is is the failure of the economic plan because of uh, incompetence? Or is it because there was no economic plan and the economic plan was simply a cover for a power consolidation? Of course, the, the final nail in the coffin was, was really the ca- cancellation of the Aramco IPO. What we're basically saying the long way around is that this is unsustainable. And you're talking about whether the axis of autocracy in the Arab world has won when, in fact, they're uh, taking a long walk off a short bridge, whether they've won or not. I mean, uh, that's the thing. I mean, the thing about kicking the can down the road is that eventually you run out of road. My own reading is that the Arab regional order is more volatile and more unstable than it was in late 2010, right before the Arab Spring. It's actually, the the unsustainabilities have increased since then. After 2013, when they actually like kind of stemmed the tide of the revolutions, after they kind of reinstituted military rule over Egypt, Syria was a mess. Libya became kind of a civil war, again, because of their influence, because of their meddling, both both them and Qatar. I thought that they're going to use this chance and use this opportunity to structurally reform their regimes in such a way that prevents a 2011 uh, redux. So I thought that, yes, they're going to win now because in a sense that they're going to fix, they're going to introduce some kind of reforms to fix the the main grievances that led to 2011. But of course, that's what an intelligent person would do. Again, I was projecting my own rationality on them, right? So I was thinking, okay, now they're going to do this Vision 2030. Now they're going to fix all of this. And now we're going to have... I was depressed because at the time because I thought, now they're going to do dictatorship right. And they're going to make it stable and we're stuck with these guys for the rest of our lives. Exactly. And that's not what happened. In a, in a sense, they, they learned only the wrong lessons. They doubled down on the repression. They doubled down on what didn't work before. And we're starting to see the conclusion of that. The Arab world in 2010 was described as, quote-unquote, a tinderbox. I know people get lazy with the metaphors. It can now be described as like an industrial diesel storage facility. I like the analogy, but the thing is, right now, when we say that in 2010 it was a tinderbox, we're we're doing this with the the luxury of hindsight. Hmm. Because in 2010, it didn't feel like that. In 2010, we felt that this is a stasis, that this is the end of Arab history. 2011 came out of nowhere. You know? If you'd asked us in 2010, we'd be like, yeah, they won two decades ago. And in fact, I mean, even in my debate with Hassan Hassan, I asked him, like, would you consider Assad 2010, Mubarak 2010, Bin Ali 2010, Gaddafi 2010 to have reached this point of victory? And he said yes. So for Hassan, of course, his definition of victory over here was, was really not sustainability because he, he acknowledges that, you know, this is, of course, not sustainable. But in his point of view, he's like, this is their thinking. So this is not Hassan's thinking. This is Hassan basically saying, this is how they're thinking. This is the point that they want to reach. 
So, so like I said, so basically, I, thought, I want to be like Gaddafi in 2010, only more Gaddafi. Exactly, exactly. They're, so they're doubling down on what the, what didn't work. This you what know I'm what saying. the problem with Gaddafi was? He had he wasn't brutal enough. That's exactly what they say about Mubarak. So they say that the problem, Mubarak's problem, he lost control because he wasn't repressive enough. I'm I'm serious. It this sounds is like think. a joke. So I I actually came across a couple a couple tweets by Shafiq Shafiq Ghabra, who is I believe an academic. So he said something like, "Everything has changed in the Arab world. Everything has changed in terms of demographics, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, the you know information revolution, in terms of education. Everything has changed except repression. The 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 dictators didn't didn't get the agenda. At least be a competent dictator." To be a competent dictator, you have to you have to hide your repression somehow, so that you don't inspire so much resistance. You know, what explains their behavior is that they're only thinking in terms of survival. It's not a sense of impending victory which explains this repression. Maybe for them, they they define victory in a certain in a, in, a, in a different way, but their main main motivation, as I see it, is fear. What's behind the hyster- hysteria is paranoia. In case you're listening and you're a halfway intelligent, aspiring autocrat, we do offer these consultancy services for a price. Yeah, I mean, I, I, sometimes I think because we, we study these guys so deeply that I think we would make good dictators, you know. So there was this really excellent article about a month ago, mid-October, by Marwan Masher in it's on the Carnegie Endowment's website, um, and I think it's on Foreign Affairs as well. It's called The Next Arab Uprising, The Collapse of Authoritarianism in the Middle East, which is interesting, first of all, because he's saying something slightly outside of the direction the debate is going. It's, it's as far away as you can get from the idea that they're winning. But secondly, it's also a view from the inside, because Mar- Marwan Masher is a former prime minister of Jordan. Again, he is one of the elite. He's seen how it works from the inside. He was part of the system. And this article is about as scathing as it gets. So if you're if you're reading Hassan's article, Hassan's article, of course, I have nothing but uh, respect and nothing but recommendation for anything that Hassan writes. But it seems to me that to get a good picture, you really need to read those two articles together. And if you read the article, you will get the feeling that Marwan Ma'ashar gets it, that they're going to burn themselves to the ground. They're going to basically repress themselves out of history. They they think that this is this is winning for them to be as repressive as possible. Marwan Mashar's article is basically full of, of statistics and data. And someone can point to these numbers, like and this gra- the, this whole data about unsustainability, unsustainability in terms of education, in terms of demographics, in terms of employment, you know, economics, uh, renter states climate change and stuff, you know, everything, really, everything. Someone can look at these and he's like, yeah, but, you know, yeah, I can see that, but the numbers don't tell the whole story. My response to that is like, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe you're really sick and you go to the doctor and the doctor will give you, you'll do some tests and the, the tests are going to come back and say that you have diabetes or you have really like a really horrible heart condition, etc. It eventually is he's going to give you some numbers. But those numbers are not going to predict the future. Basically, they're not going to say how you're going to die or how you're going to have a heart attack. They might suggest it very strongly, right? But they're not going to predetermine that this is going to happen. 
However, it's like maybe nothing will happen. Maybe you'll fall down a chair. Maybe you'll have a heart attack 10 minutes later, maybe 10 years later. But simply, it's telling a story that you are very, very sick. So basically, it doesn't necessarily follow that Arab regimes are going to collapse tomorrow. But the data unequivocally points to the fact that they are very, very sick, like you said. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's what, what, what I mean when I say that the story isn't over. And I think any intelligent observer will tell you that, yes, we agree that the story isn't over. That's why the question really goes back to what is the horizon of political possibility in the Arab world? What's going to happen next? Is it going to be collapse? Is it going to be authoritarian consolidation? Is it going to be both? Is it going to be like massive instability as they try to to uh, to assert their their their, uh, their influence, or is it going to be another uprising as Marwan Mashar's article predicts or at least uh, suggests? The thing about horizons of possibility is that mass protest in every single Arab country but two wasn't on the horizon of political possibility on the first of December twenty ten, and this can be set off. I'm going to use the term black swan. Interestingly, Black Swan is a term coined by Nassim Nicholas Talib, who two facts you need to know about him. One, I have all of his books on my shelf at home. And two, I'm blocked by him on Twitter. <laughs> but a Black Swan is um, a, a metaphor that he kind of coined, which describes an event that, A, it's a complete shock to the system. It's a massive surprise, which you couldn't have predicted beforehand. B, it has a major effect. It's not like a small thing. It completely changes the way things work. And C, although it was completely impossible to predict beforehand, after the fact, it seems completely obvious. So now today, seven years after 2011, or even six months after, you know, February, March 2011, everybody with, you know, a modicum of understanding of uh, political economy could look at the Arab world and say, well, yeah, that was a tinderbox. That was, you know a completely unreasonable state of affairs for us to expect to continue. And of course, this was going to happen eventually. But in late 2010, nobody was thinking, you know what the next big, you know, hotspot for the world is. Building up on this idea of Black Swan events is is my idea here. And I think I, think I, I was interviewed earlier this year, I believe, on an Arabic language podcast in which I made this prediction. Basically, the, the host, who's an Egyptian-American, I believe, was asking me about my own vision of what is the horizon of political possibility. And I, I told him, listen, unfortunately, the, what I can see is impending collapse. What my advice for young people living in the Arab world is avoid direct confrontation, avoid confronting the, the regimes when they're at their most hysterical, and wait for a black swan event. Now, the Black Swan event, I don't know what that Black Swan event will be. We just got one. The murder of Jamal Khashoggi was a a Black Swan event. There might be the first of many. You never know. And we don't know when it will be. Exactly. We don't know what it will bring about. Is it going to bring about another uprising? Is it going to bring about a collapse of another country? Is it going to bring about another refugee crisis? Is it going to bring about another ISIS? Is it going to be another regional war? I don't know, but out of 10 scenarios I can think about, nine of them are are dark. What you're basically saying is if you can see a really big, really aggressive-looking, thuggish-looking fat guy dancing on a very small table, holding two swords, and he looks drunk, don't rush at him. Wait until he looks like he's already about to fall over because it's only a matter of time. I don't don't want to visualize that, Ahmed, you know, but uh, I'm glad that you're able to visualize it, and I'm not going to ask you why. Uh, well, basically, I'm saying that because these guys have, have become hysterically repressive, 
don't give them a good reason to to take it out all on you. So is this the same advice that you'd give to activists outside? We live in a different world after Jamal. There is a sense that we're at war, but there is a sense of renewed urgency, a sense of renewed energy, which kind of says that if they're going to hunt us down, we might as well punch back as as hard as as fast as we can. So how how are you seeing this? Can you explain that more? I mean, to be honest, Ahmed, the point of when this dawned on me was really when, and I don't think I'm ready to speak about the details, but I did receive credible threats against my own safety. And I had to contact the Norwegian authorities, etc. And at some point, of course, this leaked to the media in Norway. And I got this message from my son, my four-year-old son's kindergarten, where they're asking whether there are security concerns that they need to be aware of. That's when you realize that this is war. I am at war. We don't have the luxury of separating ourselves from the event, of being complacent. And I guess of being selective about who you work with, who you cooperate with, because eventually it's really, if they're going to, as I said, I say it again, if they're going to hunt us down, then we don't have 20 years to fix this. We have to start punching back. So if they feel that they're about to win, I said in my analysis so far that I don't believe that's true. I believe actually that it's a sense of hysteria and paranoia. It, it feels, for me, as an Arab activist living in exile, it feels like my back is to, is to the wall. I'm backed up to the wall, and I need to punch. But I also know that in a very real way, the dictators also feel, yes, I know that they feel that they won, they're about to win, etc., but I also feel that they're motivated by fear, and in a certain metaphorical way, I guess, they feel that their back is against the wall. To be honest, I don't know what will happen. I don't know if it's going to be positive or negative. I, and I, I, my own prediction is that's probably going to be negative. But if you, if you work on yourself, you work on your skills, in, improve your academic credentials, increase your skills, work on yourself. Take care of your family. Exactly. So at, at whatever happens then, you'll be in a better position. And I don't want to sort of give away any spoilers for anyone who's reading a good book at the moment about literally anything in human history. But it always ends up with a dictator dying. Yeah, and I remember there is this uh, this famous monologue by uh, I think Charlie Chaplin had a had a oh the dictator the yeah. dictator yeah, and there's something very powerful that he says, I I can't remember the exact quote, but he basically this is like so long men die tyranny is not sustainable because those tyrants will lo- will will die one day. So back to the short sightedness of the counter-revolutionary order. I'm not sure at what point it was in the last two years. It probably coincided with the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, but they completely abandoned the moral high ground and they abandoned the, the pretense of having the moral high ground. You know, they, they don't care anymore. They don't pretend to say we're the good guys. They don't try to appear as the good guys. They're just in your face about what they can do and how you can do nothing about it anymore. They used to kind of cite a model. So they, they would say, for example... You know, like, I, I don't think this came from official sources, but you know, you remember when they tried to reach out to China, for example, and there was a lot of, like, really love for China. A lot of their influencers, they didn't say this, but a lot of their influencers and, like, you know, those social media dudes, they're kind of promoting the China model, saying that, yeah, China is an, is an example, is a good example for a country which is repressive, but also has a thriving open economy. So this really raises the question of, is this victory? Is it victory when you no longer even compete for the moral high ground? 
Is it victory because you don't need to? Because there's no resistance to you? Because you really beat up everybody who can resist? Or is it failure? Is it basically impending collapse? Because the moral high ground is the only kind of high ground that you cannot, you can't rest, you cannot wrestle it away from the, the, the opposition here. The opposition being, you know, people who have been consistently acting with moral integrity or speaking with moral integrity. But again, I, I say that this conversation is important. The conversation over the horizon of political possibility is important because it sets what people accept as normal and it sets what people accept as possible. And that, that has all kinds of effects on, on strategy, on funding priorities, on foreign policy, etc. Because let's say that you are sitting in, a, in the foreign ministry of some big European country and the, the overall uh, feeling is that this is not possible, X is not possible, then you're not going to work towards it because you're like, you know, this is a lost cause. If you're sat in a European foreign ministry and you're thinking the cause of democracy and liberty in the Arab world has been conclusively lost, it basically means that you might as well get used to these guys and make yourself comfortable and figure out a way to deal with them. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, let's at least let's do business, you know. If for the next 10 years we're not going to have a solution for this, we don't want to be cut out from, you know, the business contracts and, and this and that. And so the moment you kind of get used to this, even if you hate it, it's going to, it's going, it's really ugly. It's really ugly. The effects are really nothing to be taken lightly. So anyway, like my contention has consistently been that there is no real model. There is no sustainable model that those dictatorships can aim for that constitutes a win. And that they have no vision really beyond endless repression. And that endless repression, again, like, okay, with Vision 2030, with I thought maybe they're, they're, they're fixing their game, right? But then, I, I, again, I'm, I'm saying that they have no vision behind endless repression. And that endless repression is boosted not by internal support, but, at, but by external support. And if, whenever they want internal support, the, real, the boost is really about jingoistic nationalism, kind of like their hyper-nationalism, etc., but beyond that, they have nothing inspiring to offer the masses. They have nothing, nothing to look forward to except increased repression. I mean, people, people comment about Sisi, for example, saying, yeah, what? I mean, look at him. I mean, he's failed in many, in many ways, in many regards. I mean, security, it's not a disaster, but it's not exactly good. The economy, again, it's not a disaster, but it's not exactly good. And they're like, see, so you can have repression, but like, okay, you can get to this kind of... Uh, Moderate failure, a slow spiral down. It's not good, but it's not a disaster. This kind of dictatorship, like what you're really looking, you're looking from the outside. What's happening inside is that he's actually eating at society. He's eating at the institutions and civil society and society really generally, all of its, uh, you know, all of its structure, weakening, hollowing it out to the point of parts of it are basically non-functioning. It looks like a minor setback, but what if a, what if a major crisis comes along? What if another black swan comes along? So Hassan and his piece, or maybe in, in my debate with him, basically he's like, the risk is very high. He's like, we're at a very, very high risk, very volatile situation. He explains it as either the dictators are going to bid, win big or they're going to break the region completely. Of course, uh, for him, he's like, their version of winning big is complete normalization and consolidation of authoritarianism. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that, like, when we take a situation and we're like, what are all the possible outcomes? It's not an either or. 
a lot of a lot of the time it's all it's all of these outcomes happen at the same time so for example when we're we're looking at syria in 2012 and we're like yeah this could go to a jihadist magnet this could go to a sectarian civil war this can go to a proxy war we end up getting all of them so when we look at this and we're like okay resurgent authoritarianism or breakage or more failed states or more terror threats or more uprisings it's not always an or sometimes it's all of the above and as i said the situation right now is far more volatile than it was in 2010 the the unsustainabilities have gotten worse and those dictators simply doubled down it's like they can't switch to another mode of thinking another track of thinking the only thing they can think about they're basically digging a deeper hole so for example Recently, Mohammed bin Salman met with the U.S. evangelicals. Why? Because he wants to basically ingratiate himself even more to the pro-Israel lobby and to uh, the evangelicals who are basically the core support of Trump. So when he's faced with this situation where he's completely lost, where basically he needs to make overtures to, to his people in this case, where he, you know, he pissed away a lot of legitimacy, let's say. I'm talking moral legitimacy here, not political legitimacy. Instead of doing that, he doubles down on I need more more external support. I want I want I need even more of Trump's support and the pro-Israel lobby support and Netanyahu's support, etc. Again, they're digging down, they're doubling down, and they're digging in more. And it it seems to me that if you had a choice, the only reason you'd keep digging is because you have no other way to get out, or you you kind of sealed your other exits. Like if you've got a guy. Um, like say you're Mohammed bin Zayed or someone or you're the Saudi king and you've kind of put your hopes in this guy Mohammed bin Salman the visionary young millennial reformist prince and he's gone ahead and had your consulate dismember a journalist and brought down the ire and outrage and attention of the entire world and after two weeks of denials um, you're forced to acknowledge that it did happen and admit it and whilst more and more gruesome details keep coming out, the only response you have is to kind of double down and, you know, give like an outrageous half excuse and then, you know, dig in and, and keep backing your man. The only reason you do this instead of jettisoning the guy who's clearly become a liability is because you have no other choice. I mean, of course, they're posing this as if they're, they're strong. This is actually the, the truth is there's no plan B. They have no plan B. They have no option over here. MBS is the best they can do. This is actually a sign that they have no other no, no other strategic options. They have no strategic depth, in, in other words. I mean, even if we're talking about the economy, right? We're talking about... So MBS keeps bringing up the economy and how the, the banks and the investment banks, etc., are continuing to invest in him. The fact is that erratic and incompetent dictators increased political risk and increased political risk is eventually going to spook out investors so right now that's true right now they're still sticking by him but if he keeps his erratic if his erratic behavior gets more erratic which is probably the case there is no there's no guarantee that they won't walk out on him based upon pure self-interest not because not moral disgust or anything and you know like my previous career was in startup consultancy in the gulf and i can tell you that investors are still eyeing the gulf's market but privately they're spooked this kind of brings me back to one of the, the most reasonable, I'd say, sources of regime paranoia is the fact that 2011 came out of nowhere. 
They try to make it look like this is the Muslim Brotherhood that did the Arab Spring. Again, it's, we know that's complete bullshit. They try to deal with it as if it's caused by some nefarious organization or a foreign power. The fact is nobody predicted this. It was completely organic uprising and nobody predicted it, including the people who took part in it. So, I mean, and this is one of the biggest sources of paranoia, the fact that it came out of nowhere and this means it can come back. And that's why they will always live in fear. They will always live in like, what if it happens again? And in case you're thinking, but it can't happen again, things are so different and the leaders are all gone, etc., etc. That was exactly what conventional wisdom was in 2010, that such a thing couldn't happen. But for me, it boils down to these two points. Not resisting dictatorship is against human nature and it runs counter to historical precedent. Like when we talk about human nature and talk about uh, the, the march of history or historical precedent, etc., a lot of people are like, uh, they, they roll their eyes. They're like, you know, what are you talking about? But these are precisely the same people who didn't accept or didn't predict 2011. The reason why this conversation is very important, the reason why I would say this conversation is even critical, is that we're fighting over the future. Our backs are to the wall, and we need to. Tell the world that this is not normal and this is not sustainable. There are many reasons to be cynical. There are many reasons to be pessimistic. But there's one thing that's filling me with energy, which is that what happens next is all up to us. We've been quiet over the last couple of months, but not inactive. There have been lots of major projects ongoing behind the scenes, and we have really interesting things coming up, including ways for you to support us. Stay tuned to the Arab Tyrant Manual Twitter account for that. Until then, the best way for you to support us is to share this podcast, rate it on whatever app you're listening to it with, and share your feedback with us, hashtag Arab Tyrant Manual. About the advert you heard near the beginning of the episode, I need hardly tell you, but McKinsey don't really sponsor us. Although, if you're an Arab dictator, they'll probably happily support you in exchange for some of the hard-earned cash and assets you've freed with a shakedown of local businessmen. Thanks to Khalud and Senna for production. I'm Ahmed Gatnash, and the Arab Tyrant Manual is a project of Kawakibi Foundation. سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيف يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيف